in the Tao Te Ching, uh, there's a passage in there about the importance, the, the wisdom of bamboo. When a, when a plant is just strong like this, the wind can blow it over. If, it's, if it can bend with the wind, it doesn't break. There are times when to be strong is to be flexible. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. My guest today is Diane Dreher. Diane is the author of the best-selling Tao of Inner Peace. As well as four other nonfiction books, she's an award-winning university professor and positive psychology researcher. Her work blends the wisdom of the past with powerful strategies from contemporary psychology and neuroscience to help us meet the challenges of our time with greater courage, creativity, and hope. Somebody once told me that life is full of pain, but it doesn't have to be full of suffering. I think that's true, as reductive as that sounds, as simplistic as that might be. But Diane's work, I think, can help us to experience the truth of that. Diane's books have been translated into 10 languages. Her work has been featured in USA Today, Entrepreneur, Red Book, Glamour, Cosmopolitan, Science of Mind, and many other works. In this interview, we discuss lessons that were taught 25 centuries ago in ancient China that are still relevant today and will still be relevant 25 centuries from now. We discuss how to better understand and cultivate your unique strengths, how to understand and cultivate a relationship to your intuition, the power of stillness and how to achieve it, the four stages of discovering your purpose or calling, recognizing and resolving false dilemmas, finding paths through either or situations that seem unwinnable. We talk about the wisdom of bamboo, what we can learn from it about strength, flexibility and resilience how we can use our differences to help us work together to find solutions. And as with many of my guests, uh, most of my guests, I ask her to share what she's learned about writing that has helped her to complete and publish books that people actually read and benefit from. My hope is that you can use some of these same ideas in your own work. You can learn more about Diane and her work at her website, dianedreher.com. Her last name is spelled D-R-E-H-E-R. I hope you enjoy and benefit from and experience inner peace and greater level more often, more easily, more deeply because of the work of my new friend, Diane Dreher. Diane, welcome to the School for Good Living. I am delighted to be here. Thank you, Brilliant. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. Will you tell me, please, what is life about? Okay. Well... Life is a journey of discovery. The way I see it, we're all here, and this goes way back to my studies in the Renaissance. We're all here with a certain set of gifts or strengths. Some people say it's our genes. Some people say God gave them to us. Some people say we developed them. But we all have certain gifts, and it's our, our duty and our destiny to discover them and use them to enrich our life and make a positive difference in the world. So it's a constant process of discovery. Yeah. Well, tell me, how do you go about that? How do I go about that? Well, in one of the things that I do, I'm a positive psychology coach. 
So I ask all my clients to take something called the VIA Character Survey, uh, www.viacharacter.org, I believe. And just like it sounds, VIA. VIA, yes, it's Virtues in Action, Values, okay. Values in Action, rather. A character strength survey that was developed by Martin Seligman and Christopher Peterson and a whole group of positive psychologists who studied all of the cultures in the world going back in time to the first recorded uh, stories, religions, etc. And they came up with 24 character strengths that are common to all humanity. Despite all the differences we have on the surface, we all seem to agree that we value courage, compassion, creativity, spirituality, perseverance, curiosity, and all those other 24 strengths. So mm -hmm. to take, take the survey, which I've done repeatedly, and I ask all my clients to do, it points out their top strengths. And studies have shown that when we use our, what they call our signature strengths, our particular top strengths, on a regular basis, we're healthier, happier, and more successful. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, as a college professor, I would ask all my student advisees to take the survey and to connect their strengths with their interests so that they could then chart their course to their futures. And I do this myself. I'm, I'm aware that one of my top strengths is curiosity. Mm -hmm. And well, that's great. It's, it's wonderful. Our top strengths can be really an advantage, but they can also be a disadvantage if we use them too much. For example, when I'm doing research on the internet, my curiosity can send me way off on a tangent if I don't watch out. Uh, I, or I'll, <laughs> I'll admit. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, it's, it's a strength. So to be aware of our strengths, I think, is, is very, very helpful for me personally and also professionally. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. That's not um, anything I had heard of before. I, I know of Marty Seligman and his work and the mm -hmm. father particularly of the positive psychology movement, but I'd never heard of via character.org. I'll look into that. I've, I've done the strengths finder assessment and recommended that for friends and family and clients, but, uh, but not this one. So thanks for introducing me to that. Oh yeah. Oh, you're very welcome. Actually, it's also on the authentic happiness, uh, mm -hmm. university of Pennsylvania site that Martin Seligman has together with a whole lot of other surveys and it's free, you know, because when we take the survey, we become part of their research. And I think that's great. I mean, we, you know, our names are not mentioned or anything, just demographic data yeah. so that they can continue learning, which I think that's our greatest strength as human beings, you know, is our ability to learn and grow. We, yeah. can't, we can't run as fast as horses. We can't fly by our own power. Um, there are a lot of things we can't do. We aren't as strong as some, some of the other animals. We can't swim as far as whales. And yet we can modify, we can make major changes in our lives, in our world by continuing to learn. That's our greatest strength. Yeah, absolutely. So you have written a few books. You've written five, as I understand. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Okay. And your most and this might not actually be accurate that it's your most recent book. It might be your most recently republished book. You can clarify that for me, but the Tao of Inner Peace. Yeah, the Tao of Inner Peace. 
this one with a new cover um, came out around, first of all, I wrote, I wrote it in 1990 when the world was going through a lot of perestroika and glasnost and changing in terms of politics. Then I revised it in 2000 to incorporate many changes, okay? And what happened is because the Tao of Inner Peace talks about how to, how to find inner peace, how to find greater peace within us so that we can create greater peace around us. Uh, my publisher put it out as a new audio book this year, 2022. Awesome. <laughs> so there it is. And the principles of Tao, which are quite old, 25 centuries ago, written by Lao Tzu during the Warring States period in ancient China, when people were really seeking solutions to all the confusion and insecurity they found. My publisher figured that there was a lot of uh, confusion and insecurity during the COVID pandemic and a lot of the upheaval in our world. And so that these principles are still just as relevant today. Yeah, ab absolutely. I, uh, I remember reading something from an Eastern teacher, an Indian teacher who he was speaking to a group, I believe, and he said something about the, the problems we're solving here. The questions we're addressing here are timeless. <laughs> they're the same questions people were asking 10,000 years ago, and they're the same questions people will be asking in 10,000 years. And it's ultimately this about human suffering in the the relief from suffering and this kind of thing. And uh, I love to see some of the different traditions around the world and the texts and the questions and the teachings that come from those that can continue to guide us because they're not specific to any geography or any specific um, circumstance, but they are truly timeless. And as I understand from your work, I didn't know this before that the Tao De Ching is the most translated text of any in the world other than the Bible. Is that right? Right, right exactly. And, and it's, you, you've done an, um, have you done a translation of this yourself as well? I have done a poetic translation. Yeah, um, I, you know, it's not it's not exact word for word, but the Chinese characters are multifaceted, so that one mm. Chinese character can mean many things. So mm. yes, yes, I have done that. What, what struck me when you were just talking about, you know, these, the same problem of human suffering, um, yeah. what's interesting is that there are many people and organizations now that, that are connecting very ancient practices with the latest science. Right. The Dalai Lama, for example, is yeah. working with neuroscientists uh, studying how meditation can help us create greater compassion for ourselves and others. Uh, Jim Doty, who's a, a wonderful neurosurgeon at Stanford that I met and interviewed, started a center for compassion at Stanford University. And they're, they're practicing some very old techniques based on mindfulness. Uh, he's wor been working with the Dalai Lama, actually. And they're testing them with the latest scientific methods. And of course, John Kabat-Zinn with mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, started that quite a while ago. And the MBSR research has been shown to relieve all kinds of illnesses because a lot of illnesses begin with stress. Yeah. And of course, he, he took an old Buddhist practice, brought it into the 20th and 21st centuries, and uh, it's helping us today. So we're reaching back 
for wisdom and reaching ahead to connect it to evidence and in lots of different ways. Yeah, it, it gives me hope, right? Because not only are we dealing with some really big and complex issues in our world today in a variety of areas, whether it's from the environment to social justice, you know, to our political discourse, like all these things, but they're big and they're complicated and no one of us, it seems, is able to solve it, but it's a collective thing. And the, and the solutions we have previously employed, it seems like, well, that's what got us here <laughs> in a way. So <laughs> yeah. get out of it, maybe going to take another kind of thinking and, and hopefully it's, it's this. What I wonder is from, from your journey, you know, every, I know any one of our lives can be both an example and an inspiration. So we can, you know, what works for one doesn't necessarily work for everyone, but sometimes it does, or sometimes it can provide the inspiration to help us find our way forward in our lives. And I'm curious, how did, how did the Tao come into your life? How did the Tao Te Ching, how did this book make its way into your life? And, and this is kind of a two-part question, but how did it come into your life? And how has your life been different since? Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's almost a universal question. Okay. How did it come into my life? Gradually, I began to discover Eastern philosophy when I was 10 years old. My father was an Air Force colonel. We were transferred to the Philippine Islands from the continental United States. And all of a sudden, I found myself in this whole different world. We lived in a house on Clark Air Force Base with windows made out of seashells. And mango and papaya trees grew in our yard. And we had uh, all these people who came to work in our house, uh, <clears throat> including one incredible chef and a person who cleaned the house. I'm not going to call him, uh, well, a person who cleaned our house, uh, dancing on a coconut husk across the floor to polish the floor. And I wow. thought that was so cool. I decided I was going to help him. So I got, uh, you know, <laughs> dancing across the coconut husk. This was a different world. My father brought back all kinds of art from Hong Kong and Tokyo. He was a pilot, so we flew there. And I thought, and, and calligraphy. So here I was, this 10-year-old, trying to do Chinese brush painting and Chinese calligraphy because it spoke to me. It was like it reminded me of something that I personally had never known, but somehow felt that I was a part of uh, and would draw palm trees and started getting into painting because art became my practice. Uh, I didn't know meditation per se. Nobody could teach me that when I was a 10-year-old living on an Air Force base. But when uh, we came back to the States, I lived in uh, Grandview, Missouri, and was painting trees during an art class in the sixth grade. And all the other kids laughed at me and they said, Diane doesn't know how to draw a tree. She has all the branches coming out from the top. And I, I said, yeah, they have trees like that. <laughs> and the teacher said, they do have trees like that somewhere, but not here. And I thought, there's no one way to be a tree. Mm -hmm. You know, there's east and west. And I kept looking at the convergence of east and west and trying to reconcile east and west in my own life. So in high school and college, I started reading Eastern philosophy, meditating, discovered the Tao Te Ching. And it changed the way I looked at the world. I sought ways to bring yin and yang together instead of either or, only half the equation. I think that's the, the problem of 
so many people in our very busy, active Western world is that we're very, very yang, you know, busy, busy, busy all the time. And not enough yin, time to reflect. In Japanese and Chinese paintings, there's all this open space. The Japanese call it yohaku. You know, they have flowers or a vision of a, a mountain, Mount Fuji. But there's, there's a lot of empty space in their art because they believe that's important. We need empty space. We need margins in our lives so that we can breathe, so that we can reflect, so that we know what we're doing, so our action becomes mindful action instead of mindless action, excess. So uh, it's changed my life. It's, it's made me aware that I can fall into either or, you know, right or wrong, all, win or lose, all or nothing, the logical fallacy of the false dilemma when I'm threatened and stressed. And I see a lot of that happening in our country right now with political polarization, which I yeah. see is very sad because ultimately we have more in common according to the VIA character strength survey. And according to the fact that we all have common ground, we live on it. It's our home. It's called planet earth. You know? Yep. Yeah. So um, both and not either or. Yeah. Thank you for that. Well, tell me, why did you decide to write a book about it? I know that it's not, it's not a casual endeavor to write and publish a book. Um, and it, I still happen to think that it's as, at least as significant as many of the other milestones in our lives that we can be proud of, like earning a college degree mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or even starting a business in some ways and a book is, or can be like a business. But why did you decide to write this book? Who did you write it for? What did you hope it would do for them? And oh how did my. All... <laughs> Big questions. <laughs> yeah. You ask really great cosmic questions. Um, why did I decide to write the Tao of Inner Peace? And then I wrote a book called The Tao of Personal Leadership and The Tao of Womanhood uh, because Taoism inspires me. Uh, I experienced sometimes being rubricized, being reduced to you know one specific kind of person but mm-hmm. by other people projecting on me uh, to be specific. When I was in college, before I wrote this book, uh, And it's wonderful, uh, the kinds of books I write. I write about principles, practices, and personal experience. So there are little anecdotes about my life woven in there uh, Mm -hmm. with some of the names changed to protect some of the people who did things that are wonderful examples, but would be embarrassing if I used their real names. So um, when I was a junior in college, I worked my way, I was working my way through the University of California, Riverside. At, at the uh, newspaper office, the Riverside Press Enterprise. And it was just full of excitement and discovery. I, I loved everything I was learning in college. I loved working at the newspaper. I wanted to be a writer. And my boyfriend was one year ahead of me. And the spring of my junior year, one night under the stars, it was very romantic. He uh, proposed to me. And of course, I said, yes, he was the first love of my life. And he said, Good. Now that we've gotten that settled, uh, you'll drop out of school and work so that I can go to grad school. Wow. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> Why can't we both go to grad school? I wanted to go to grad school and get a degree and become a college professor. And so did he. And he said, well, you know, 
you're being selfish. And he broke up with me that night. So I got a marriage proposal and a breakup, you know, within five minutes. (laughs) What a shock. He didn't see the fact that it wasn't an either or. It wasn't his graduate school and my being the, you know, the resource person who was going to have some kind of a job so that he could get his degree. We could have both worked and gotten graduate degrees. He could have worked for a year, saved his money, and then gone to grad school. So we could have gone to grad school together. Uh, As it happened, he went to grad school in Texas. I got a full graduate fellowship the following year to UCLA. Did not have to, you know, have a job, whatever. And we both became college professors, but our lives went off in separate directions because we could not see beyond the false dilemma. Or at least he, he could not see beyond the false dilemma. My asking him, why can't we both go to graduate school? He considered selfish. And Abraham Maslow would consider that self-actualization, you know. <laughs> and that if when we love people, we want the best, of course, for ourselves, but we also want the best for them. And it shouldn't be a choice of either or, all or nothing, win or lose. Yeah, this false dichotomy. Yeah. But how often does that happen? So I, I decided, okay, um, these old principles of the Tao Te Ching about dynamic balance of yin and yang are so important that, that we can learn from them today and they can help us solve our problems. You know, they can help us create solutions together that are neither my way or your way, but something that is shared, you know, something new that's created from multiple perspectives. And it's right. not, yeah, not just, um, and there are different kinds of leadership. As we've noticed in the news, uh, there is the old top-down vision of leadership in which the leader gives the orders and everybody else follows. Having grown up in a military family, I observed that firsthand. Uh, And then, you know, there are other ways. Yeah, absolutely. And and as you're sharing this, I'm reminded um, the literal translation of Tao is the way. The way, right? yes. Which sounds very Star Wars, and I'm sure Lucas <laughs> has drawn <laughs> his inspiration from Asian cultures. But I, there's something to me that is beautiful about that, right? That whether it's balancing extremes, finding the middle way, you know, reconciling paradox. Uh-huh. In fact, I had a teacher suggest that was this teacher's opinion, at least, that all spiritual work involves paradox. And I thought that was an interesting perspective to have, but it's easy to see. And this was something is before we begin recording, we were just talking about um, someone we both know, Jack Canfield. And it was in a training with Jack that he suggested to me that there's only two causes of disease, too much of something or not enough of something. (laughs) Right. And at the extremes of anything. And that goes back to the Aristotelian golden mean. You know, these these ancient people, uh, as you said, to begin with, you know, they're this they're looking at the same human problem of suffering. And we suffer from when we have not enough and we suffer from having too much indigestion of one kind or another. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely fascinating leadership, though, in the Tao Te Ching. Here's this really old book. Right. And yet there's a wonderful passage in it. 
that says, with the best of leaders, when the work is done, the project completed, the people all say we did it ourselves. That's a that's an you know an amazing sense of team leadership and empowerment. And Carl Rogers, the humanistic psychologist who obviously did a lot of interpersonal uh, therapy, but also had the Carl Rogers Peace Project, where he'd go to international conflict sites and bring two groups together to listen to each other because he felt like they could discover the truth together and that a leader was a facilitator. He carried that quote in his wallet throughout his life, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. because that was a reminder that no one person, no matter how well-meaning or how educated, can see everything. I can't see behind me. Uh, I, I can only see to some degree to each side with a little peripheral vision. And yet, when we get a group of people, a circle of support together, we have multiple perspectives on any issue, and we can come up with more creative solutions. And that's with our complex problems today, that's the kind of leadership we need. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I'm curious too, on your take of this um, next question I'll ask, because obviously this is something you've made a study of and devoted a lot of your life to, but it's about the, what I think, so you can correct me on this, but what I would say the pragmatic nature of the Tao Te Ching, because I understand Lao Tzu lived around the time of Confucius mm-hmm. and they both were teachers, but of a different sort. <laughs> and as we sit here today, we talk about the Tao is kind of, I don't want to say mystical necessarily, but a conceptual or philosophical text, but the Tao Te Ching, but my understanding is it it actually is intended as a pragmatic, like as, as a guide to life, not some abstract thing that's disconnected from the realities of our, even our daily problems. So I know I'm, there's not maybe a clear question here, but I am interested if, if you will, if you'll speak to Confucian teachings versus, you know, maybe the Taoist sort of teachings. And then also about a connection of the Tao. If you see, there is one to the problems of daily living. Oh, wow. Okay. So we've got Confucius, Lao Tzu, the Tao, and daily living. Um, Both of these Chinese philosophers lived during the Warring States period in ancient China. And like many people today, Confucius sought security in family values and traditional social norms. Uh, In essence, Maintaining the status quo, being respectful of elders, being kind to each other. And Lao Tzu was more like the Henry David Thoreau of ancient China. He found his answers out in nature. And like contemporary environmentalists, recognizing that there are principles and patterns in nature that we can learn from. We can learn to cooperate with nature and not trash the planet. That's one thing. But we can also learn really important lessons from observing nature because we're part of nature. In fact, the Chinese character for nature includes a Chinese character for a human being. The Chinese character for a human being is like an upside down V, okay? And the Chinese character for large is a parallel line that goes out from that V, like a person saying big, you know? Mm. (laughs) And then nature adds another parallel line at the top of that V, so that the human being is part of nature. 
Mm-hmm. The natural principles are our own principles. We too have uh, cycles of energy within us, as there are cycles of energy around us. We have circadian rhythms. Some people are really alert early morning, some people are night people. To be aware of our own inner rhythms is wisdom. Uh, to be aware of the rhythms of nature and not plant spring vegetables uh, at this time of year is, is, is wisdom. I uh, at one point figured, oh, I live in California, I can plant tomatoes now. You know, doesn't work <laughs> yeah, because the nights are longer, the days are shorter, the sun disappears. And, you know, everything has its own time and season. So personally, uh, we can develop greater wisdom and self-awareness and knowledge. We can also make better decisions by being aware of the principles of Tao. Um, there are times when we need to be flexible in order to be resilient. And in the West, we have this definition of being strong as being tough. In the Tao Te Ching, uh, there's a passage in there about the importance, the, the wisdom of bamboo. When, some, when, a, when a, a stalk, a plant is, is just strong like this, the wind can blow it over. If, it's, if it can bend with the wind, it doesn't break. It's hollow at the center. It has that inner kind of sense of source of, of strength and the strength of flexibility. There are times when to be strong is to be flexible, not to just be tough and, and uh, you know, refuse to, to bend. So um, in conflict, for example, to be flexible, to recognize that there's more than one solution, perhaps, to any problem, and to listen and to look for possibilities. So I think that um, the Tao Te Ching gives us personal wisdom, but it also gives us guidelines or principles for dealing with, with conflict around us that we can, uh, we can combine yin and yang. We can listen to the people around us. We can, uh, we can do what a group now that's forming in this country called the Braver Angels is doing by bringing red and blue political uh, people together to deal with a particular issue. I went to a Braver Angels meeting uh, last weekend, and we were talking about elections, uh, trustworthy elections, because in a democracy, since that's how we run things in a democracy is by voting and electing our leaders, we need to be able to trust our elections. So yeah. how, how can we create trustworthy elections? So the reds and the blues listened to each other in large groups and then in, in pairs and shared their concerns and came up with solutions that involved both sides thesis, antithesis, synthesis, the Hegelian dialectic, and recommendations to make our elections more trustworthy and to help people understand uh, why, you know, what goes on behind elections, who is able to register to vote, how we are sure that every citizen can, can be registered to vote, and the people who are not citizens can't do that because that doesn't work in, a, in our country. You know, so how can we bring differences together? Um, not, not politically, but sometimes professionally. Uh, just looking for solutions together really helps. 
When I was, yeah, a department chair, I had uh, my administrative assistant was all upset. And one of the faculty members was upset and they were with each other. And I thought, what's going on here? And uh, decided that, well, the faculty member needed a certain number of photocopies made for her class so that she could hand them out, you know, by her class time. And the administrative assistant didn't know when, when the faculty member needed them or even what faculty member needed them. There was just a note put on the desk saying, please make 20 photocopies. Mm-hmm. So um, they were both upset. And they said, what do you need? You know, <laughs> well, what they needed was the administrative assistant needed to know specifically what was, what was required of her. And the yeah. faculty member needed to know that this stuff would be done on time. So that together they came up with this little uh, handout that they could, you know, people could fill out saying what needs to be done for whom, by when, <laughs> how many copies. It's simple, right? It and always sounds so simple after the fact. <laughs> they came up with a solution together and then they became friends. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? We can, we can let our differences divide us or we, we can become partners in finding solutions. That, you know, that prevented a lot of other uh, consternation and confusion in the department. It was a simple thing. Yeah. Yeah. And as I hear you share that, both that specific example and, and what you're talking about more broadly, uh, I'm reminded of that French proverb about to understand all is to forgive all. Right. And once we understand, okay, I got it. Your needs, your desires. I wasn't clear, you know, and that yeah. and the power that that has. Yeah. Now, most conflicts that I've witnessed have been, you know, breakdowns in communication, just confusion. Yeah. There yeah. are some individuals who seem to enjoy creating conflict and you know, they're, they're in a, they're in a minority, thank goodness. But most of the time uh, we can simply pause Take a deep breath, center down, because the Tao tells us that we cannot uh, we cannot come up with good solutions when we're stressed. How did Lao Tzu know that 25 centuries ago? And yet he has a passage that says, can you go through your days holding, embracing the Tao, releasing your tension as you focus your breathing, clearing your vision, and opening yourself to life? Mm-hmm. And that's the process of centering down, which we need to do before we listen to somebody else that disagrees with us, because otherwise we won't hear them clearly. We'll just be defensive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no doubt. Well, in, in hearing you read that passage and just reflecting a bit on some of the passages from the Tao Ching in your book, um, I am thinking that it is more wisdom than prescriptive instruction for sure, right? Like that, mm-hmm. what you just read there was, it was a question and kind of a philosophical one. But what that leads me to then is this whole idea, right? I, I don't know that I have this exactly right, but I have a memory of a famous passage from this about that, that the Tao cannot be named, <laughs> right? Yeah. Whatever is said as the Tao is not the Tao and, and so forth. But what, like, how do you take that? I get that's antithetical to a lot of our Western thinking like, Oh, I want to understand it. I want to dissect it. I want to classify it, you know, but there's this whole thing we're talking about the Tao, like what the heck is it? And how do we deal with that with thought and language that it's beyond all that? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, our Western minds want to categorize things. So we have labels. I mean, I have a label for a tree. You know, that's a tree. And if I say that's a tree, um, I can walk by and I don't have to have an intimate communion experience with that individual tree. You know, I mean, we, we don't have time in our lives. We've got to categorize things. But once we start categorizing things, we destroy their uniqueness and their authenticity. We, we put them in a catalog of our brains, you know, and we reduce them to a, to a label. Uh, and we can't do that with the Tao. And we can't do that with, I think, with any one person. Because we are more than the labels that, that are easily put upon us. Labels are reductive. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, the Tao is sacred and life is sacred. And we can't, we have to use words in order to communicate, all right? <laughs> but, but to reduce it to a definition and say, that's what it is, you know, uh, our Western scientific rational minds want to do that. But there's so much more to life than the labels we put on it. You know, that's, yeah. that's part of it. There's another quote from the Tao that says, those who know do not speak. Those who speak do not know. So here I am trying to speak about the Tao. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Simply uh, asserting that you're one of the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, there, there's no one answer that it, it's, it's this dynamic, evolving, living reality that, that changes. It's like quantum mechanics changes as we witness it. And yeah. we, because we're part of the process. Yeah, there's, there's something here that I think is really not only profound, but also potentially profoundly useful. And uh, this thought maybe isn't very well formed here, but it is something that will, I'll sometimes introduce into some of the conversations with some of my coaching clients about, about language. It often starts with language and it mm -hmm. about experiences that we not that we nominalize, that we turn into nouns like relationships as though it's a thing somehow static or frozen in time or of a certain quality. But when we can both unfreeze it and relate to it as the verb or the process that it is, right? Like a marriage, we'll talk about a marriage. My marriage is this or that. But really what we're, I think, attempting to get at is an experience we have or maybe have had. And when we can connect to the aliveness that it is or can be for us, that's when we can really transform our experience of it. And there's a freedom in that. And I get, as I'm saying it, it can sound very abstract or very esoteric, but I think there's something that can be like incredibly liberating when we get there. And I think learning about the Tao helps mm -hmm. us move closer to that. Things we didn't even know we didn't know, you know? Yeah. But and what's your, and what do you think? Nouns are what? A, a person, place, or thing, right? A noun. Um, you know, way back from my grammar days, uh, it's it's a it's a piece of property. Mm -hmm. It's a thing. It's an object. Mm -hmm. So by naming something, we objectify it. But when we're in process, you know, with some someone, uh, someone, you know, okay, we have to call someone a friend. We have very limited 
vocabulary for personal relationships in this country. We have people in their 60s and 70s referring to each other as girlfriend and boyfriend if they're not married. And, you know, I, I think that they're adults, they're not girls and boys at this point. But again, we have an impoverishment of language as well as the fact that language puts things into a static property state when, the, when yeah. they're nouns, right? Yeah. And, and, and limits them. Whereas uh, the Tao is dynamic. The Tao is present. The Tao, the Tao is now. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And it's something, there's a, one particular aspect I, I'm really eager to ask you about, which is this of Wu Wei. And as, I, as I've heard it, like non-doing, mm -hmm. <laughs> if I have that right. Mm -hmm. But it's a, kind of a theme. I mean, although, as I understand it, it's talked about directly in the text, but it's also kind of a theme that recurs throughout it. But, and this is something that I'm interested in because as I look at my life, like, I think this might literally be true that all what I consider the best things in my life, they all happened without my effort, <laughs> and, you know, and conversely, when I use my intellect as best I can to make a plan or set a goal, and then my will to try to get there, that that's when I experience what I would say, like a lot of, I don't want to say suffering that might be too extreme, but a lot of discomfort, like a lot of unpleasant emotions, but in, and there's this balance, right? I mean, between like trying and allowing and this concept of just like spontaneous right action or non-doing is very intriguing, but I haven't, I certainly haven't mastered it yet, <laughs> but how do you see it? Like, what have you learned about it? What is it? How can we do it more fully, more easily? You know, that kind of thing. Wu Wei uh, is, I think, you know, access to our intuitive faculty. Mm -hmm. If I'm trying to do something with my conscious mind and think, okay, I've got to solve this problem now and use will and effort and push my way through it, yeah. uh, ego, you know, is really there. Uh, I'm limited to this much of what my brain can do because that's, you know, that's my conscious mind. And there are times when I get stuck working on a writing project and I can see no further than, you know, uh, than what I'm doing. And I can, I can push through and try to finish the job with my limited conscious ability. Or I can step back and say, you know, I've reached the point of diminishing returns and uh, I'm, I'm going to exercise Wu Wei, non-action. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to go out and take a walk, work in my garden. Uh, you know, any number of other things. And the next day when I come back, I have looked at that same piece of writing and all of a sudden there, there are new insights and the problem is solved. Someone, something <laughs> comes in, drops the solution in, call it the muse, intuition, but Wu Wei is, is a process of releasing, of letting go when something isn't working. And, and, you know, making way for, for a higher power of inspiration to flow through us and to us. And sometimes, I mean, this happens a lot with creative people. Um, Albert Einstein used to go sailing when he was out there at Princeton. And he would, when he was sailing, he'd, he'd be, you know, all of a sudden, he was not in his lab. But the next step in an experiment would come to him 
when he was not working on the experiment. <laughs> okay. So it's so interesting. That's yeah, because there's the creative process, I think, is is dependent upon Wu Wei. There's a, a period of active work, you know, and then there is uh, incubation when we're not working on the thing. And after incubation comes inspiration, and then you go back and you incorporate it into verification. So there are four steps, you know, uh, the actual starting the work, initiation, and then incubation, inspiration, and verification. I, uh, I think that sometimes when we don't know what to do, the best thing to do is Wu Wei, uh, because solutions will come to us when we clear our minds. We have access to all kinds of creative possibilities. When I was uh, in college, my parents told me that they couldn't afford to, you know, pay for my college. So I was one summer I was working at all these little temp jobs uh, for tele services, driving this old red Volkswagen home after one of my jobs. And I drove by the Riverside Press Enterprise newspaper office. And I got this sudden inspiration, I guess, uh, saying, you're a writer, you should work there. So I turned the car around, made a U-turn, went into their parking lot, walked in the door at age 19, feeling very shy, but, uh, but energized by this impulse saying, hi, I'm Diane Dreer, I'm a writer, I'd like to apply for a job. <laughs> And they said, oh, come up upstairs to the personnel office. So I did fill out some papers. And they said, our college intern just gave notice this morning. Can you start work on Monday? Wow. <laughs> Holy cow. That's Wu Wei. You know, that's, that's opening ourselves up to inspiration, to intuition. Uh, I didn't have to, I didn't even, you know, they hadn't even advertised the job yet. So it wasn't in the want ads. I mean, it was just there. So sometimes we tune into something when we're in a state of Wu Wei. Um, I was driving my car. I guess that's like uh, Albert Einstein, uh, you know, sailing. When we're doing something that is repetitive and uh, you know, relatively mindless, we're not we're not worrying about something. Then our minds are clear. Yeah, that's so interesting. And as I've observed this, it seems to me that motion, like you said, repetitive. Uh -huh. um, I that's often a part of it, but motion seems to be a part of it. And, you know, we often talk about ideas that come to us in the shower. Yeah. <laughs> for whatever reason, but water is moving. So there's an element of motion there too. But what's your, what's your sense of like, if I, I don't know if there's significance to that, but what's your sense of the connection with being in movement? Obviously we don't have to be in there's times that stillness can be what's called for. But what's your sense of like motion as um, like a gateway to accessing this kind of Wu Wei state or our intuition? You know, I'd never thought of it until you, you mentioned that, but repetitive motions, like I can be out in my garden pulling weeds. I get all kinds of good ideas, but I'm <laughs> and the garden looks better too. Um, but something, you know, walking, you know, a lot of people get ideas when they're walking. Yeah. Uh, our bodies were made to move. And certainly mm -hmm. under running water, uh, that's a kind of a cleansing uh, process as well, you know, washing away all kinds of worries. And, and, but we are in, in, in movement. Um, maybe maybe there's, there's some connection there. Uh, mm -hmm. The movement, 
the, you know, repetitive, we're not, we're not working on something with our conscious mind. We're just, you know, kind of letting things happen, uh, moving along. And that rhythm may, may uh, trigger uh, inspiration and intuition. Yeah, wow. So interesting. So interesting. How did that, how did that story turn out? How long did you have that job? What, if anything significant or lasting came as a result of it? Oh, that was a great job because newspaper offices are open 24 seven. So I could work my newspaper, you know, copy uh, job. Uh, I wrote headlines. I edited little stories. I prepared the TV log, which is kind of funny since I don't watch that much television. And I got to go out and cover, you know, do, do stories and have a byline. I met all these reporters and wow. got to get a sense of what it was like to be a writer, you know. Uh, and in the newsroom, we were all there with our desks and it was exciting. You know, whatever there was, the police radio would come on and whatever there was a, a crime or an accident, the reporters would all go charging out with the, you know, the cameras and ready to cover the story. <laughs> like, oh, wow. good, you know. Uh, it made me aware of the fact that news is usually, uh, unless it's an editorial, it's usually uh, when it bleeds, it leads. You know, it's it's yep. uh, bad news. So I I worked my way through college, uh, and gave it gave me a lot of self respect. I could you know pay my my tuition, bought my books, moved into the dorms, paid for it all myself. Gave me a lot of sense of of agency, and uh, it was like. I, I, I had self-respect because I was working at the newspaper office. I mean, I was, what, what was an English major to do? Well, I was working. <laughs> wow. So, what a cool experience for at 19. To yeah. Have. Yeah. It just, so you know, yeah, and then we got, you know, a free uh, subscription to the paper and it just, it gave me a, a lot of respect for journalists who, who sometimes at great hazard to their health and to their lives go out and cover yeah. stories, especially international correspondence in some of these hotspots. And yeah. the fact that the news in, in our newsroom, if, if something was, was erroneously reported, we'd have to print a retraction because mm. news is truth. And they right. you know, get, the, get the facts, get the truth. It was not propaganda. And now there's a certain amount of confusion about what news is and what it isn't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded of that. If I ever open Facebook and I see my so-called newsfeed, <laughs> or they call it a timeline now or something, but. Yeah. yeah a lot of it is gossip, you know, uh, it's not, yeah. it's not verifiable news, but sometimes I think that, you know, that we have uh, some kind of guidance that we can tune into that will help us find our way, you know, the way, the Tao, the journey of life. And wow. we can find guidance by, by, again, by tuning into our intuition, by, uh, by using Wu Wei instead of just, you know, <clears throat> pushing through with this limited conscious mind. Yeah. What is your, in your experience, how can we cultivate a stronger relationship to or greater access to that intuition because right, and I'll just extend this. I'll protract this question just a little bit, but my sense is that two of the hardest things in the world is one living in a way like being able to hear our inner voice or yeah. that intuition or the promptings or whatever you would call it. And two is maybe then having the courage to follow it, <laughs> assuming we can even hear it in the first place. But that's where I go back to the question I'm 
asking of what's your experience of how we can cultivate a relationship to that, to be able to turn up that inner volume and hear it more easily. Okay. Um, well, like anything, it's, it's a relationship, right? If we want to have a relationship with our intuition, we need to uh, cultivate that relationship. So for some people, they're in a, they're, they access their intuition when they're um, running cross country, you know, when they're out in nature. For some people, they access it by having a regular meditation practice. For, um, for some people, you know, it's, it's meditating and, and, and listening. To say, you know, to just sort of take deep breaths, center down, and ask, what is it that I need to know? And we'll get the answer. Maybe not right away, but something will come up. We, we you know, we need to converse with our, with our intuitive uh, capacity. We need to tune into it. I got a lot of uh, intuition when I was training in Aikido. Because the the movement and uh, it's very Tao, we you know would change an attack into a, a spiral that would not harm the attacker. We you know uh, it was that's why it's a nonviolent martial art. But we'd have to be centered. We'd have to come move from center, be aware of our energies, and then extend our key or our energy out. So to be aware of our own energies, to be aware of our center, to have something that for us is a centering exercise. And I think, I think movement is very important. I think if we just sit, that's not enough. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And as I've looked at this, I think even right, like writing, like Julia Cameron teaches in The Artist's Way about morning pages or free writing, mm -hmm. or, but even the writing is a sense of motion. Yeah, right? yeah. And it can come from that. Exactly. And, and it's a sense of motion. And it's also tuning in regularly to that part of ourselves that is beneath the surface of our awareness. You know, we've got this sort of dialogue that goes on in our brains all the time, usually telling us what we need to do, or the inner critic comes in there from time to time, or, you know, worries and stuff. Well, to get that out of the way, and to sometimes put it out on the page, if it's morning pages, to sort of uh, release it and get perspective on it. But the act of writing is, is, is actually motion. Yeah. yeah <laughs> right. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, I want to ask you about, I know you've written a book, your personal Renaissance, 12 mm -hmm. steps to finding your life's true calling. And I haven't read that book yet, but I am curious about it. And as a, it's a minor hobby of mine, collecting, uh, life purpose, de uh, like definition processes, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure you've seen many of these too. Like one of my favorites that I came across was it, the advice was like to open a word processor or a notebook and write until you write something that makes you cry. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh goodness. Maybe <laughs> it works for somebody, but, but at any rate, you've written a whole book about this and it's a process It's 12 steps we could follow. Uh-huh. At the end, it would, in, uh, in design, help us find our true calling. But broadly speaking, what do you say to somebody who's looking for purpose, calling, meaning, you know, something like that? What do you just kind of, I don't want to say advice, but mm -hmm. 
approach? How do you begin that conversation? Well, I wrote this book, actually, after listening to some of my students in a senior seminar. I, I asked them, we were talking about something, and I said, well, why are you in college anyway? Mm. And one of them said, I need to get a good job so I can make money. I want to buy a new car. And uh, I looked, I said, is that all? <laughs> and then one of them said, I want to be able to support my wife and family in the future. And I, I said, oh, my gosh, <laughs> uh, this, is, this is all on the surface of things, you know, Maslow's deficiency needs. What else is there for you? And I thought these poor students, they're, they're out of touch with their sense of meaning and purpose. You know, they just want to pay the bills, you know, whether they're altruistically paying the bills for wife and family or, pay, or paying the bills for a new car for self. I mean, it's yes, we need to deal with our deficiency needs. We need to have enough food and shelter and water and air and all the rest of that. But there's more to life than that. So I went back and, and researched how people in the Renaissance discovered their callings because in the Middle Ages, the only people who were seen to have a sense of calling were monks, priests, and nuns. Everybody else just worked to, you know, eat and to live. And, and, and this is where, as I understand, the word vocation even comes from, right? It's a calling, yeah, vocari, the Latin word uh, for, for uh, calling, to be called. They believed they were called by God, you know, to be priests, monks, and nuns. In the Renaissance, all of a sudden, Artists and theologians believed, and the theologians taught, that everyone had a calling. Everyone was given a, a, a set of, of gifts by God, and it was their, their duty and their destiny to use them in the service of God, their neighbor, and to, uh, to fulfill themselves. And if they didn't uh, work and, and do that, that was, that was very bad. So you have the Puritan work ethic going to extremes there. But what happened was there was this, in, within one generation, shift where uh, there were all these artists, scientists, saints, you know, people seeking their callings. You have a, a young boy growing up in the English countryside whose parents were illiterate and could only sign their names with an X, going to London and finding his calling on the London stage as William Shakespeare. And, that, and Christopher Marlowe, same kind of thing. One generation. because. They felt like everyone is given a, a set of strengths, a set of gifts, and we have to discover what they are and use them. Well, if people tell you that you've got a, a, your own personal set of strengths, you start looking for them. Yeah. So I figured that we, we could learn from that. So uh, my four, 12 steps, yes, but there are four stages, which I guess is simpler in that book. The first one is discovery, to discover our strengths. And of course, when we were children, we naturally reached out and did things that we enjoyed. You know, we played with uh, animals, we went out and explored nature, or we loved books, or we loved to draw and paint, or something that brought us a sense of joy. And that was, that was how we played. That was kind of what came naturally to us. That's one way of discovering our strengths. Another is to remember a time when we felt really alive and, and vital and happy and fulfilled. What were we doing? You know? <laughs> uh, and another one is to take the VIA character survey. You know? and, but there are, there are ways to discover our strengths. And then the second stage is detachment. 
from distractions that keep us from using our strengths, which can be external distractions. You know, a lot of the the habits we get into, media, you know, uh, some people spend an incredible amount of time uh, on social media. well, even TV, like I, I looked this up, but I, I, I'm hesitant to call Googling anything research, but, but I Googled this yeah. or I read that even still, even with all the social media and all of the other technology that the average American is still average American is still watching like five hours a day. Like, how could that be true? But from what I can see online, I think it's true. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, but one of my relatives, I used to go visit when I was in college had a TV set in the kitchen, in the living room, and even in the bathroom. And they were all on, right? (laughs) And I said, why do you have all these on? Oh, it's company, you know, but with all that noise coming at you, uh, you know, I guess it keeps people from from really reflecting on their lives. Maybe they don't want to. Well, isn't the the Carl (laughs) Jung thing about a person will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing one's own soul? (laughs) That's right. Yeah. There's, you know, so there are a lot of distractions and the, the process of finding our calling, we we need to listen to our hearts and our souls. So we have to detach from these distractions and from all the noise in our world in order to do that. So there are checklists and, you know, chapter about detachment, you know, what are your distractions? How can you cut down on them, et cetera. And, and then there's discernment, uh, which is, to listen to our hearts. You know, where do we find value and meaning? Where do we find joy? And, you know, there's an Ignatian reflection where people can find, where where do I find consolation? What brings me a sense of joy and meaning? And where do I find desolation? What, where do I find, where do I feel alone, separate, frustrated, anxious, depressed? And to just, you know, the light and the dark and, and to guide that becomes an inner compass. You know, if I'm doing something and, and I find myself feeling really frustrated and angry, maybe that's desolation. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe there's something else I should go in the opposite direction. Yeah. That, Desol- that's yeah. Interesting. To, to hear you say that now, um, man, that's valuable for me personally, because I realized just in like, it's almost like a light went on that I've avoided looking at the truth of where I find or experience desolation. You know, but that's a powerful way. And of course we know we can often get clearer about what we want by learning what we don't want. But for me personally, like I've avoided that aspect of discernment. So thank you for for this now. Yeah. And it it depends on the individual because I have a little quiz in, in the book about, you know, okay, you know, I was walking in the woods and I, you know, looked at the beautiful sunset. Well, of course that's consolation, right? And then, you know, desolation, uh, other, other things, feeling detached, feeling alone. I, I sprained my ankle and I spent the rest of the day feeling sorry for myself. That's obvious. Desolation. Then there is, uh, I spent the weekend visiting my relatives. And, and I, <laughs> I'd ask people in a workshop, is that consolation and desolation? Well, it, feel, it depends on how you feel about your relatives. Yeah. <laughs> you know, do you have a good relationship with them? Or are you just there because you feel like you should? Is it abusive? I mean, what is it? Or I spent uh, the weekend working in the yard. Now, for me, that's gardening. 
That's wonderful. That's consolation. For some people, that's that's a drag. That's yard right. work. That's <laughs> yeah. so you know, and and we each have our own inner compass based upon our personal experience, our personal gifts, our values, and to really tune into that. And that's important. They have a, an examine the uh, Jesuits. I used to teach at a Jesuit university, which all came from the Renaissance, a daily examine where you pause at the end of the day and you look at the patterns of joy and, you know, sunlight and shadow, uh, consolation and desolation and what you can learn from them and give thanks for the consolation and say, okay, what can I learn from the desolation? And then, you know, modify your course accordingly. And the stage four is direction where you put it all together or gifts, uh, and our sense of uh, values from discernment and avoid distractions and just uh, set a goal and then move forward one step at a time mm-hmm. and learn awesome. from the process. Yeah. Thank Thank you for breaking that down. And I realize, you know, that this is also probably to some degree, at least a dynamic process that I you know, for me personally, I will look at this thing like, cause I lived the first 35 years or so of my life, maybe 30 years believing life had no purpose, or at least not sure if it did and realizing like I hadn't discovered it in the lessons I had learned or, mm-hmm. you know, the way of life I had been brought up in hadn't found like a, a satisfying, you know, purpose for my own life. And it actually changed in a conversation with a rabbi, which was far oh. off my, you know, religious tradition and that kind of thing. But in that conversation, and I was in a crisis period at that time, my father had recently passed. I was in a job I didn't love, you know, my marriage was on its way to be being a divorce and had a son who was born prematurely and spent nine months in the NICU and so forth. So really hard time in my life. And And I was looking for answers outside what I had known. And this rabbi listened to to me describe how painful my life was and was very kind in the way he helped me understand how much of that was self-created despite the externality. (laughs) And he shared with me this idea that ultimately the common denominator here was that I was not living on purpose. I was not living a purpose. Mm -hmm. And although he stopped short of telling me what it was for some reason, in that conversation, I believed, I came to believe that I had, I did have a purpose and now it was up to me to find it and to live it. And it did change my life. Now, since that time, I've done exercises where I've articulated it and it's through a few drafts, it's been really flowery and poetic and things like this. And it's, it's been useful. And at the same time, I tend to think if it's, it might not be true that I have a purpose, but believing I do, I know from experience is a different way of living. <laughs> so that's kind of a mind twist right there to go. I don't know objectively if every human is born with a purpose and then we must discover it and live it. And it's, you know, like God's expectation of us or something like, I don't yeah, know that, yeah. but I know if I declare it for myself and I live it, that that's a different way of living. And then all at the same time, I have this thought that, you know, if we do have a purpose, it's probably beyond anything I could articulate in language anyway. So how to live with this self-created purpose and find the joy and benefit that can come from it while knowing it's all made up. (laughs) 
but what do you what, wow do you um okay there's a lot there okay first of all the the purpose that can be named is not the eternal name uh, it's like the Tao. it's a yeah. pro, it's a process so right. that uh what was my purpose when i was 19 years old is not the same as my purpose now i mean it it's 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 included in my purpose now, but we continue to grow and to discover. You know, we're right. always in discovery. So uh, as long as we're alive and aware, we're always in discovery. And there are, there are interesting role models for that. There's a woman named Edith Eager that I interviewed recently who's a Holocaust survivor. She was in Auschwitz as a teenager, and she... Uh, knew Viktor Frankl after she came to this country. She be- got her doctorate and became a psychologist. She is 94 years old. She's still seeing clients. And she wow. just finished her second book. Wow. And you can, you can Google her. She has also, she's just started a new webinar, helping people discover uh, their North Star, their guiding star in life. I mean, wow. she's amazing. But she's, she says, you know, I'm still learning, right? and when she was you know she's 94 now when she was 50 she wasn't the person she is now but you know we we continue to evolve and develop uh and who's she says she believes that she survived auschwitz so that she could tell her story and be a guide to others that's Mm. her purpose uh whether it's a purpose that was given to her from some, you know, supreme being, or it's a purpose that she claimed for herself. Uh, either way, it's the purpose that helps her navigate her life, and it's real for her. You know. Yeah, yeah it's powerful, and I I do have this belief that so much of what's not working in our society today, with the depression or addiction or loneliness or whatever unhealthy behavior, like what we might say unhealthy or just unfulfilling really does have at least as a component, if not a root, this meaninglessness or a, a sense of purposelessness. And, you know, I have a client and, and yet the challenge of like finding it, it's not, I don't think it's very easy. I have a client and a friend who uh, I met a couple years ago and he was introduced to me by another friend. And when we talked, I asked him, you know, what would you want out of this coaching relationship? Mm-hmm. He said, I want to find my purpose. And I said, okay, you know, I have this online course and that's a component of it. And through this, I have a process that I believe, you know, will be effective in helping you find it and so forth. And so he came through the program, he did it and he showed up, he did the work. Well, I hadn't seen him after the program ended for about a year. And I just ran into him about six weeks ago. And I said to him, Hey, I've been thinking about you. And I wonder how's it going? Yeah. Purpose thing. (laughs) And you know what he said? It just, it, it made me smile. He said, yeah, I don't really feel that I've found and I'm living my purpose, but I feel a lot more peace. <laughs> and I went, I don't know about you, but that's close enough for me. Yeah. You know, yeah, if yeah. Healthy, if peaceful if we're healthy. So I thought that was really interesting that there doesn't really seem to be one approach that works for everybody when it comes to this purpose or meaning or calling. No. And, and, What's sad, as you said, is that there is an epidemic of depression, anxiety, and loneliness, especially among young people. 
I mean, apparently 49% of American college students have a clinical depression or anxiety disorder. And I mean, that's really sad. That's half our college students. Okay. Plus a lot of people, you know, uh, are seeing therapists. My, my friends who are therapists, their practices are awful since COVID happened, which shook up a lot of people's lives and made them reflect on the fact that, you know, the habit that they were living was really not meaningful for them. And now they don't really know what to do. Our culture does not reinforce people for self-actualizing, for finding a sense of purpose, for, for having meaning. Mm-hmm. It, instead, it tells people to go shopping. You know, if you're feeling uh, less than, well, you need to go out and buy a new pair of shoes or, you know, uh, take this pill or buy a new mattress or something, you know. Yeah. Or, or earn a lot of money. Yeah. So you can buy all these things. Yeah, right. that it, it's we're looking outside ourselves to find ourselves, and that yeah. doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's my experience for sure. Well, Diane, we've covered a lot already, and I do have a few more questions uh, related okay. to what we've been talking about. But in the interest of time, um, I want to transition us to the enlightening lightning round before we talk about creativity and writing. <laughs> We've already been talking for more than an hour. Oh, really? So, okay. <laughs> let me check in with you. First of all, how are you doing? And, and do you want to take a break for a moment? Or are, you, are you good to keep going? I'm fine. I can't imagine the time has just flown by. We must have been in a flow state. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know I have been. Okay, cool. Well, before we transition, mm-hmm. uh, what, if anything related to any of the topics we've been discussing or any of your books or work have we not talked about that you want to talk about or you think might be of service to the listener? Oh my gosh. Well, uh, I think that there are two aspects, yin and yang from the Tao Te Ching, awareness and action. And we need both. We need to have an awareness of who we are, what we value, you know, where we are in our lives and, and being present right here and right now, that awareness, awareness of, of the principles of Tao, awareness of our oneness with nature. And then we need to have action because without action, awareness can get stagnant, like stagnant water, you know. Uh, but without awareness, action is mindless action. So we need to balance awareness and action in our lives according to the principles of Tao, to have time to reflect and time to act on what we value. And together, I think that dynamic balance will create greater, greater wholeness and harmony in our lives and in our world. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So thank you for that. And I think each of us gets to discover what that looks like in the 1440 minutes we have each day. Right. Or however long we're Mm -hmm. blessed to have them. So on the one hand, there's the concept and the concept itself can be useful, the distinction. And then there's the practice. How do we put that into practice for ourselves? Right. And we need to find our own way because we're all unique. There's no one on this planet who's ever been exactly like you or me. No one on this planet has ever had the same fingerprints, not even identical twins. That too, you know our uniqueness and yet our oneness. (laughs) There it is. It's remarkable. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. There's a series of questions on a variety of topics. I think it's actually nine questions these days. Okay. (laughs) Uh, My aim 
for the most part is to simply ask the question and kind of stand aside. I might tug on your responses of here and there, but uh, otherwise I'll aim to keep it, keep it, keep it moving. Okay. Okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a. An adventurous journey. Okay. Uh, Question number two, what is something about which you have changed your mind in recent years? Political opposites, people in the opposite political parties. I now see that we're all underneath the surface, more of the same than we were different. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Question number three, I know this might be a stretch, but if you were required every day to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Wow. (laughs) Compassion. Okay. For a moment, I thought the shirt would say, wow. (laughs) (laughs) No, the the shirt needs to say compassion. We need more of that. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. Question number four. So what book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Uh, Probably lately it's Jim Doty's Into the Magic Shop, which is his spiritual memoir. It's very inspiring. Hmm. Is this the one, this is the one about, is he, an, he was a neuro, neuro or is a neurosurgeon. He's, he's a neurosurgeon at Stanford. Neurosurgeon. But, okay. but he had a very dysfunctional childhood that he overcame through meditation. Wow. Why is this the book that, that you've been gifting or recommending most often lately? Because it shows that a boy who grew up in poverty, with a father who was an alcoholic, with a mother who was suicidally depressed, who was very often homeless and hungry. If he could wander into a magic shop and have the woman there, a very kind woman, teach him to meditate, and it changed his life so much so that he became a neuroscientist, a neurosurgeon, and a professor at Stanford, and a, you know, best-selling author and the friend of the Dalai Lamas who's working to create greater compassion in the world, that if he could go from that beginning to this, then for any of us, incredible growth is possible. And the key is our awareness, our meditation. Instead of looking at our problem, to look through it, to transcend, to find a solution. Right on. You know, a friend gave me that book a few years ago and I haven't read it. And now I'm thinking maybe I'll revisit that sooner than later. Cool. Thank you for that. Um, Okay. The next one has to do with travel. So in your life, I imagine you've done quite a bit of travel. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Oh, I always keep a journal when I travel. Hmm. record my insights. Awesome. How long have you done that? Since I was uh, a junior in college, when I went to Stratford-upon-Avon to study Shakespeare. Wow. Because travel is such a fast way of learning. You know, everything is new. And so, yeah. you know, it, it challenges our preconceptions. So to write down our insights is very important so we don't lose them. Yeah. It's amazing what we forget, isn't it? (laughs) 
and you read something you wrote and you thought, I didn't remember that, but I'm glad I recall yeah. it now because yeah. I wrote it. Absolutely. Well, and someone suggested to me too that, right, I forget this whole body of research, but about how sameness, uh, about it's about how novelty uh, helps us expand, helps our sense of time to expand, right? That when it's same, 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 every day starts to seem the same, that time really seems to speed up because there's really nothing to differentiate our experience mm-hmm. and, and how travel can then, because of the novelty that it, that we get to experience, it really does seem to extend the time, including in addition to like the quality of our experience. But anyway, I'm, I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but I love what you're saying. And I love that you've been journaling about your travel that long. Uh, Yeah. Travel, travel expands our awareness. It wakes us up. Yeah. Throws us out of our habitual routine. So we notice all kinds of things. Absolutely. And what's that saying, that very famous saying about the world is a book and those who never travel read but one page or something like that? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good quote. Yeah. Okay, awesome. So question number six, what is, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? That I've started doing hmm, or stopped doing. I've, that's a, that's a pretty deep question for an instant answer. Uh, I've, I've probably, I've, I've started meditating more and, and uh, spending more time in nature. Mm. Awesome. Okay. And I, I listened to an interview that you did. I found one on YouTube. I, I listened to, and in it, I think you said you do different types of meditation each day. Oh yeah, true? yeah, yeah. Um, I begin. I, I do uh, meditation. I do Reiki treatments. <laughs> I but I do Reiki at night and send out energy to help heal the planet and you know people I know who have asked for treatments. In the morning, I do something called Inner Balance with the HeartMath, uh, the HeartMath Institute, and I have this little device that shows me when I am. Um, in a high coherence or not. <laughs> so it's, it's like a biofeedback. So I do that kind of meditation. I do mindfulness meditation. I, uh, I say a mantra, and I very often meditate on a spiritual passage. It's nice to have a real repertoire. It's like having a balanced diet of meditation. And at night, I reflect on my day, you know, do a kind of examine, look back on the, the sunlight and the shadows, give thanks for one and, and learn from the other. And then do Reiki treatments uh, and, you know, a centering meditation. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'm a HeartMath certified a trainer as well. Oh, so, that's fantastic. Yeah. So you do this too, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And it's to me a perfect example of what you talked about earlier, how now modern science is kind of validating or verifying what <laughs> we've known for thousands of years. But it's like, yep, it works. Yeah, yeah. I'm very excited about the Global Coherence Initiative. Yeah, it's so interesting. I do that at night also, you know, to send out, because our energies collectively affect the energies of the planet. So, <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and at the same time, it's like, man, some of the headlines, you know, because as we record this now, it's September of 2022. 
think this will probably live on the internet forever, <laughs> probably. But so just to give the listeners some reference, but one of the headlines I read this week was about Putin mobilizing 300,000 more troops to participate in this Ukraine conflict. And it's like, I don't know if, I don't know what's going on, but I know there's a lot of devastation. So. Yeah. And, and a lot of Russians are protesting against that, uh, yeah. which, you know, I, in fact, sometimes when I do the global coherence initiative, you know, you can look and see where in the world other people are meditating and tuning in the little bright spots. And there are occasionally people meditating for heart math in Russia. Wow. So, uh, you know, we're not alone. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you. Okay. I'll keep us moving here. Uh, question number seven, what's one thing you wish every American knew? How to begin dealing with the chronic stress that most of us experience so that we can become more centered, more balanced, uh, more at peace with ourselves and others. So dealing with stress, we need the tools to deal with stress. Yeah, I agree. Question number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've learned about making relationships work? One word, listening. <laughs> it sounds so easy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And question number nine, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? It's a resource and a means to an end. And what I've noticed is when, when I work for money just for myself, uh, that's pretty limited. So all of my books, I, I donate some of my royalties to causes that I believe in. And then I feel mm -hmm. like, I'm making money for the greater good. <laughs> right on. That's really cool. What are some of the causes that you, that your books contribute to? Oh, um, depending upon what the book is, inner gardening is to help, you know, nature conservation, some groups like that, the Tao of inner peace, uh, doctors without borders, uh, you know, groups that promote peace on lots of different levels, the Carter center, which is amazing considering, you know, what Jimmy Carter has done since he became president. Mm. Right on. Yeah. He's a real peace builder. Like, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. Well, speaking of money, uh, one of the things I have done to, in an attempt to express gratitude to you for sharing so generously with me and everyone listening is I've gone online and I've made a micro loan to a woman entrepreneur in Colombia. Uh, her name is Susanna. She will use this money to make improvements to her business and to purchase raw materials like fabrics and threads and pins and buttons that she will, she's a dressmaker. So uh, I won't receive any interest from this when Susanna repays it. Instead, that'll go to fund the operation in Colombia of microloans. So my hope is in uh, some way, our conversation will continue to do good <laughs> in the world and it will be even part of a virtuous cycle. So. Well, thank you for giving me a reason to do that. That is so beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Okay, well, we're in the last part. In the last part of the interview, and I realize I have one other question to ask you, so I'm going to reserve that for the end. But this is the, the time where I'll ask you a few questions about writing and the creative process. Okay. And you talked about that experience when you were 19, getting this intuitive hit 
so to speak, and driving into the newspaper and asking for a job and getting one. Uh, and you said, it, it, I heard you say that, well, you're a writer. You should go work there. <laughs> when did you first know you were a writer? Was that the moment or was it earlier? Oh, my. Um, it's been a dream of mine for a long time. Um, since my father was in the Air Force, we moved all the time. And I was, you know, <laughs> I had to leave all my friends behind every two years or very often more when he got transferred. So I would find my way to the local library, get my library card and check out books. And my library books became virtual friends. Libraries are amazing places. You know, you can get a book and have, have a relationship with a person that transcends time and space. I read yeah. Eleanor Roosevelt's autobiography when I was in high school. I read The Diary of Anne Frank. I read all of these books about people who had, who had suffered and somehow manifested great strength of character uh, and made a positive difference in different ways. So I was inspired by writers. And I'd walk around the stacks of the library looking up at all the books, thinking, someday I want to write a book that'll be up there too. Hmm. So it was like being part of, part of this community. I mean, of writers that stretches way back in time. It's, it's magical, inspirational. Yeah, I do think there's something magical about it. And someone pointed out to me that language is magic. That's why we call it spelling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah. So then I'll just jump broadly to uh, kind of the strategy maybe the tactics of how do you, what's your process for completing a book? Everything from how do you settle on the idea? How do you develop the outline, the book proposal? How do you research? How do you organize? How do you draft? When does an editor or someone else come in? Like just broadly, what's the, what are the broad strokes of getting a book done as you, as you do it? Oh, okay. Well, the first part is obviously getting the idea, which comes to me from my intuition. <laughs> if it's a good idea, I mean, it's not something that I think, okay, I'm going to do this thing. You know, I've, I've written scholarly articles that have just come from the top of my brain, but my books come from a far deeper place. And I, I just get the sense I need to write about that. And so I'll make myself little notes uh, and keep, have a folder that I put them in, you know, a literal, actual, physical folder, you know, old fashioned. And anything that, that is part of that, concept that I see, newspaper articles, uh, you know, little notes I'll throw into the folder. And then one day when I feel like it, I'll look at all the scattered pieces of paper in the folder and, and arrange them and see some kind of pattern emerge and then make myself a bullet points outline. And the book starts to take shape. Uh, and I start, you know, I, I'll have, then I, then I actually put it on the computer, a little outline. So it looks nice and print it out and put it in the folder. And then in the morning, uh, I always meditate before I write. So I'm in the right spirit. Then I'll look over whatever my notes are and uh, get more ideas. And the concept keeps growing until I've realized, okay, this book is going to have this many chapters with these concepts, you know, one concept for each chapter. and 
then uh, after a certain point, I either start writing the book or start writing the book proposal with uh, a folder for each chapter. And, you know, the same kind of process happens. If the chapter is about our relationship with nature, then I put all the research that I end up doing and, you know, Google Scholar and books and articles that I have about how nature can heal us in many ways. You know, there's, there's all this fascinating research about the effect of nature on our health, mental, physical, emotional. So that, all that would go in there. And then, uh, then I'd, I'd go through the same process in the morning after meditating and look through the, the folder when it seemed like it was ready, you know, to, to look at organize these things, make myself a little outline, and then I'd, I'd start writing. So my inspiration is uh, morning notes to myself, writing, revising, editing. Uh, and then when it gets to a, a certain point, it goes on the computer. But then I print out, I'm ashamed to say, given my feelings about nature, I use a lot of paper, but I use both sides of each piece of paper, and I also recycle the paper. But <laughs> that's to uh, you know excuse myself from fact, the fact that I print out a lot of drafts, and then I take them and I uh, look at them after my morning meditation and get ideas to add to the draft, edit the draft, revise it, add sections, etc. So it's it's a kind of a process, and then I put that on the computer. So it's a process of uh, yin and yang in terms of, uh, you know, the, the physical and the intuitive and then the editorial kind of physical aspect. And then there's a, there's a, lot, of, uh, a lot of research that goes into it. I'll make a note to myself, needs research in this area. <laughs> go, go to Google Scholar <laughs> mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and then keep writing. And then the next day when I'm, you know, I'm not... I'm not writing something, but it's during my writing time. I blocked out time every morning to write. I'll just go and learn all kinds of interesting things, take notes, print out articles, put them in the folder. So it's kind of a back and forth conversation between me and the subject until each chapter is done, until each section of the proposal is done. And then I send the proposal to my agent and hope for the best. Wow. Yeah, as I and thank you for for sharing that. As I hear you describe your process, something I'm curious to know more about and how you manage this. Uh, and for me personally, I, I've experienced it as quite a challenge. Is you know, on if if you look at these activities in verticals of like research as a vertical, drafting as a vertical, editing as a vertical. Yeah. That and there and as much as we like to think writing is a linear process, it's also I think an iterative, like a <laughs> somewhat circle. circle. Right? <laughs> yes, and it can be forever. So this, in particular, is what I'm interested to get your take about or how you manage this. Which is when it comes time to draft, how do you, assuming you do, how do you manage to produce writing without getting stuck in like the rabbit hole that research can be, or in the editing, because as we know, things can, you could spend all your time editing something and it can always be better or it could never be finished. But do you distinguish between those activities in a very deliberate way? Do you oh, follow yeah. any yeah, schedule yeah. or how do you, how do you deal with that? Okay. Um, there are different parts of my brain and perhaps different sub personalities that do this work. 
the uh, the creative part just does the drafts. Mm-hmm. And uh, occasionally the editor will lean over and say, that's the wrong word. You need to look something up. <laughs> just say, Get out of here <laughs> and I'll make myself a note in the margin. But, you know, look it up later. But I don't want to be interrupted when I'm drafting, when I'm when I'm creating, when I'm writing. It's a it's I'm a developmental writer. There are different kinds of writers. Uh, a lot of the scientists I know, having done an experiment, when they write up the experiment, they know exactly what they're going to write because they've already done the experiment. They know how many subjects there were, participants, and what they did. So mm-hmm. there's no new material that comes in. So they can be interrupted by a phone call or somebody dropping by their office or whatever. Not me. When I'm drafting something, uh, I ignore my phone. I ignore people knocking at the door <laughs> because my it's it's a it's a process of consciousness and creating. And in my mind, if I get interrupted, the it goes away. You lose it. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, it goes away when when I, I when I would try to edit it or look something up. That's bad. Okay, so I just I let my creative artist part just do what she needs to do until we've got a draft, and then I can relax and go get a drink of, of tea or coffee or something and take a break. But during that time, you know, total focus on that. It's like a meditation process. I don't want it interrupted. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, to me, to hear you describe yourself as a develop a developmental writer, I think that's what you said. Yeah. Right. Does that come from any specific body of thought? Are there different kinds of writers? You know, like, I mean, I know there are because you talked about scientists who are just trying to report something or whatever. Yeah. But is that like a larger term somebody's teaching I haven't heard before, or is that just your own description of yourself as a developmental writer? Uh, that's my own description. That you know, the process is it develops during yeah. that process. And it's like I'm getting uh, dictation from some source, and I've got to keep writing it down. So mm-hmm. the 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 book, the article, or whatever it is, develops during that process. Yeah. yeah. And editing is is you know that's great. Once I've got that you know the draft, I'll put it on the computer, print it out, and then let my editor take care of it, or let the researcher fill in the, the spaces that need to be documented. Mm-hmm. How clearly connected, this is maybe a leading question, <laughs> so forgive me, but how connected do you feel <clears throat> to your reader while you're in the act of drafting? That's a good point. Uh, sometimes I feel very connected because I feel like I'm talking to the reader. You know? mm-hmm. uh, sometimes I, I feel like I'm just taking dictation from some source. And in mm. fact, it's 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 a little bit of both. Uh, the you know the the kind of creative, poetic parts of my writing are from the source, and then I'll I'll turn and and say you know uh, in order to I don't know get centered, here's a practice you might want to use, and then I then I'm for sure directing it to to the uh, the reader. Yeah. And I I have a, a a dear friend in Chicago actually, and we we read each other's. Uh, drafts back and forth and talk about them. So there is a sense of being part of a process that way yeah. too. Cool. Either before you, before you settle on a book topic or before you're thinking of a chapter, mm-hmm. how much, if at all, do you think about either the question that this is intended to answer for a reader or the problem it's meant to solve? Like, do you have in your mind, a, um, 
a purpose, a clear purpose for each part of the book. And then you won't finish until you're satisfied that you've addressed that. Or are you a writer? And this assumes it's either it's binary and maybe it's not binary. Or are you a writer who just, oh, you just write and you're like, okay, that was everything I had to say versus, you know, like trying to help someone problem, solve a problem or answer a question. Does that, does that question make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think there are different kinds of writing for different kinds of books. The, uh, the book I'm, I'm writing now and, and the ones that I've written, I Dow of Inner Peace, for example, I was very much aware of the reader and about the, the challenges of, of grappling with this very confusing and conflict-ridden world. So uh, to, to offer something that is going to help the reader, including just small processes of getting centered during the day mm-hmm. uh, so that there is a context. I don't just write something and say, okay, I'm done. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, let's see. Let me ask you about deadlines. How important are deadlines to you and how do you use them effectively? <laughs> Well, uh, depends on if it's an internal or an external deadline, but I, I really, I really believe that we need, we need to have goals that have a timeline, or else we'll get distracted, we'll digress, we'll do other things. Especially if we're, you know, curious about lots of things in the world, we can go off on all kinds of tangents. So I usually set myself a deadline for writing a book proposal, and then you know it can be flexible, but I need to have something to aim at, or else. When is it ever going to be done? You know, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And then once once I get a book contract, the uh, press gives me a deadline. <laughs> so, and I usually say in the book proposal that you know the book will be finished. I don't know nine months after the receipt of the advance. That's usually standard. But uh, most of the time, I could actually finish it in six because I've. I, I keep writing more chapters while the process is going on of deliberation with editors and agents and whatever. So uh, I give myself some, I cut myself some slack. I give myself a margin. And if I, if I submit before the deadline, that just makes everybody happy. If I uh, submit after the deadline, that's not good. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, you know, submitting before the deadline is a little bit like, no one was ever upset that someone ended a talk early. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, what is that? Uh, under promise and over deliver instead of yeah. the opposite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. What what for you are the best and worst parts of being a writer? The best parts are the excitement of getting new ideas. That you know, the kind of contact high and inspiration from from the process itself and the joy of connecting with people that I might otherwise never meet. You know, mm. Sometimes my readers write to me and, and tell me, Oh, I read this book, you know, it made a big difference. Thank you very much. And I feel, I feel so blessed and grateful to be part of that process. So that's, that's the, uh, the good part. Bad part is, uh, the inner critic, which says with each new book project, do you really know what you're doing here? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wait, you mean that never goes away? <laughs> uh, no, mine, mine, mine comes back. And uh, okay. Uh, and, and then, you know, external critics, just the, the, the what's going on with publishers nowadays mm. is that they have the big five publishers in New York. And when I first started writing books, 
there were lots of different publishers, but they all kind of merged into these big conglomerates. And yeah. they're, they're interested in selling books about uh, the latest scandal about the uh, former president, which, yeah. you know, okay, <laughs> that's not the kind of book I write. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah. yeah. What advice, uh, what advice or encouragement would you offer to anyone who is either in the middle of their own book project, kind of the messy middle <laughs> that might help them get done, or is it someone who's in the situation of harboring the dream that they've carried the dream for a long time of someday I'll write my book. What do you say to says either kind of person to maybe help them finish or help them get started? Okay. Um, to help them finish, I suppose it would be helpful to have a writing partner, have somebody be a member of a writer's group. I used mm. to be in a writer's group and every month we would meet and we'd share what we were writing. And it would be embarrassing not to have anything to report. So, of course, we had a self-imposed deadline of our next meeting. <laughs> so that was that was useful. And we also had support. You know, people would say they, they'd say, you know, I don't understand you, that you need a transition here or you know, this is a great discussion. It's good to get real feedback, you know, while, while you're working on a draft. That's, that was terrific. So to have a writing partner or a writer's group, if we're in the middle and kind of having trouble moving forward. To begin, in my heart of hearts, I believe that when we're given a desire to do something, and it, it comes from a very deep place inside of us. We need to honor that. And we need to follow up on it because that's where we find meaning. That's where we find purpose and joy. And not to worry about, you know, how am I going to sell this book proposal? Who's going to read my book, et cetera. There are all kinds of ways to publish. I belong to the Authors Guild and they have hybrid publishers, bookshop, work, workshops, whatever, uh, how to deal with agents, how to do this, how to do that. So not to worry about the mechanics but to tune in on the message and to get started, you know, one step at a time. As the Tao Te Ching says, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. To get that momentum going, to follow your heart, to believe in your dreams. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you for that. Well, the last, uh, the last question I have for you is one that's um, of a, I'd say it's of a personal nature. Over the years, I've had a few uh, personal to me, <laughs> if I may indulge, but over the, over the last few years, I've had the, even the publicly stated intention, you know, to friends and, and families mm -hmm. and that I would write a book, a few, and I've got mm -hmm. drafts of different books and so forth. And in some ways I'm creatively blocked <laughs> is my experience mm -hmm. of myself. And yet the ideas don't quit coming. <laughs> right. So it's like, Oh, maybe I should write this book and, and so forth. <laughs> and so lately a book and I don't know where this came from or why or what to do with it, but it's, it's staying with me day to day, although I'm not acting on it much, but I'll ask you about it. It's about prayer. It's a book about prayer. Oh, and, and I'm totally fascinated because I don't consider myself religious, but I think that prayer, I, I just have this sense that it is actually something that is tremendously valuable or can be that is not very well understood by our society you know, because I think we do associate it with a certain way of being in the world. Mm -hmm. And, and so I'm not even, I'm not even sure as you might sense what the question is, <laughs> but I would just ask you, I guess it would be about two things. Like what 
in your journey, have you learned about prayer? So that's like part A. And then part B is what kind of resources or people, if any, would you recommend maybe I continue to explore to learn more about it? Wow. <laughs> well, um, first of all, I'd love to read your book. Okay. <laughs> Tell me in. Me too. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, uh, there are different kinds of prayer, as you know. There's, there's, uh, there's a prayer of petition where we're asking for something, you know. And then there's a prayer of listening where we're listening for divine guidance. And uh, there are different practices, different techniques. So that uh, my friend Jane Ferguson wrote about something called centering prayer, which the Catholics do. It's a, it's a kind of mindfulness meditation, only you have a sacred word or phrase that you say to center yourself, and then you just listen. Because how are we going to get inspiration, intuition, divine guidance, unless we're listening? So there's, there's a sense of the importance of silence in prayer. And then, of course, there are very active prayers, like saying the rosary, where, you know, our fathers and all the Hail Marys, and, you know, or meditating on a passage, which is filling the mind with inspiring words. And so that puts us in a particular frame of mind. It, it puts me into high coherence on my heart math uh, monitor, actually. <laughs> okay. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. I've never even thought to, like, try that for anything other than heart-focused breathing. Oh, yeah. Just, I mean, reading and, and then they're reading spiritual books, you know, uh, that also puts me in high coherence. So there are different kinds of prayer. There's, uh, gosh, what is it? Uh, there's a kind of prayer where you read a spiritual passage and, and then think about it or even discuss it with other people. That's a kind mm -hmm. of prayer. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are books on meditation that uh, Eknath Ishwaran's uh, Blue Mountain Center of Meditation, he has books about meditation, where you can just go to the Blue Mountain Center of Meditation and they have all kinds of free resources that you can download about, about that kind of meditative prayer. But there are so many different kinds of prayer. There are people who believe, and then, you know, to do some Google Scholar research on, on prayer and results, because there are some practices of prayer resulting in healing for people, even distant prayer you know, uh, that, that have been documented. So uh, it's sort of, it seems to me right now that, uh, that you would be exploring, you know, you'd be in the discovery process. You'd just be looking yeah. around at all these different forms of prayer and, yeah. you know, going online, examining them, seeing and then following your own questions, which, yeah. uh, you know, your, your questions might be, what are the benefits of prayer to the individual who's praying? You know, mm -hmm. uh, have there been, uh, and there have been scientific studies, and I'm sure they're, you know, on Google Scholar, there's a whole aspect of the American Psychological Association that is about spirituality. And they, they do research showing the benefits of prayer on on emotional and physical health. So that would be interesting. But as, as you're in discovery, sort of wandering around, examining the field, some of these ideas will, will connect with you on a deep level. 
and will lead you, you know, kind of answer your questions. And you'll, you'll find yourself navigating through this, this terrain uh, led by your questions. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you, you know, calling that out because that resonates deeply with me now where I, I'm just realizing that in feeling prompted to write a book about this or at least explore it more fully, that I had not gone as far as to think about, well, what questions would I like answers to or, you know, that also mm-hmm. might fit others. And that's a useful, that's a very, very useful approach. And I realized too, that I'm very interested in understanding more about indigenous methods of prayer and, the, and, the, and their relation. And, and I'm also interested, I'm, I'm super, super fascinated. And some of this, I think is very, very like with the Tao um, exploration about the individual and I don't know, the cosmos, mm-hmm. right? Because I love, I came across this, this, this quotation I read attributed to Frederick Douglass, the, the oh, slave. Yeah right? Former slave. When he said, I prayed for 20 years and I got no answer until I prayed from with my legs. That's <laughs> <laughs> so interesting how often like we pray, but our prayer, our prayer is just a hope, you know, but then when we take action and become the vehicle of mm-hmm. our own, prayer, mm-hmm. how powerful that is, but then how can we do that in a way? So this goes back to the value of you calling out, like asking questions, like making them distinct questions. And I realized that one of those questions I'm fascinated in is how can I be an individual in the world with my own ego and identity and like that we all have yet allow myself to be, or give myself to, or whatever, something greater than myself, you know, without, a, without it being a selfish endeavor, you know, Oh, that's, that, that's the paradox, right? Yeah, um, yeah. That's the paradox that, Okay, if we're just praying and saying, God, give me a good job here. I need, make, I need to make more money. I want to pray for this and pray for that. Yeah, then it's all for me. Make yeah, right. Work. Make my yeah. life work better. Um, but can we expand our sense of self? There, um, there, there's research on, on awe by uh, Dacher Keltner at uh, UC University of California, San Francisco, I believe. That, What's uh, that person's name? Dacher? D-A-C-H-E-R-K-E-L-T-N-E-R. And he's done, yeah, Keltner. Awe, okay. Awe is what we feel when we are overwhelmed by the beauty of nature, by looking at, you know, the Grand Canyon, trees, you know, that are towering above you, uh, or some incredible symphony, you know, we feel a sense of oneness with something greater than ourselves. And Dacher Keltner's research on the Berkeley campus, I I guess he's at Berkeley, actually, he's not UC San Francisco, UC Berkeley. Uh, He had students in two groups, one of them looking up at a big, tall building, and one of them looking at these Tasmanian eucalyptus trees that towered above them. And the students who looked at the trees, guess what? Experienced awe, not the big buildings. They also expressed greater altruism and compassion because the researcher, they do this in experiments, dropped the, pat, the box of pens that the, they were supposed to fill out the forms with. And more students who had experienced awe helped pick up the pens. So wow. they demonstrated. 
So that there's, and that was only one experiment, but there is a connection between experiencing this overwhelming sense of being part of something larger than ourselves, looking up at the stars and the night sky, you know, uh, watching, you know, cosmos and seeing, <laughs> you know, um, Carl Sagan's, you know, just euphoric uh, sense of wonder at yeah. the cosmos. That sense of awe makes us altruistic, makes us more uh, caring toward other people. And so if prayer and, and can bring us a sense of awe, a sense of connectedness to something larger than ourselves, a sense of gratitude, for example, um, and gratitude, the gratitude practice, which, again, has been shown to be really good for our health in lots of ways, but also help us relate to other people. It, it makes us more altruistic. It's not mm -hmm. just for our egos, you know. So there, yep. there is an ego-centered prayer. And that that is interesting. But then there's this sense of being being part of something larger. The Jewish tradition of tikkun olam is that we pray and we also ask Rabbi Hillel's three questions. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I am for myself alone, what am I? And if not now, when? The idea is that we are not here to just be for ourselves alone. We're here to try to make the world a better place. So uh, there are cues in many religious traditions away from egocentric prayer. Yeah, that's that's a great reminder. Yeah, thank you for that. And and part of what I love and what you're saying too is that you know there seems to be this connection that when we are present with or in relationship with nature, that our behavior like what we want changes mm -hmm. naturally. It's not a will power driven thing. It's just, right. We don't have to think, okay, I'm going to be kind today. I'm going to be compassionate today. It's just like when we give ourselves to that, that's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It transforms our awareness. It expands our awareness beyond our egos. And it's, it's when we're in our egos that we feel limited that when, you know, and perhaps that's why when people are in nature, it reduces their depression and anxiety because depression and anxiety happen when we're into ego and feeling less than and feeling threatened. And when we're feeling part of some glorious state of nature, all that goes away. Yeah, that's definitely my experience. Yeah. And well, the Na Native American tradition, again, you know, very close to nature and there is a sense of community with their healing in sweat lodges, et cetera. So that kind of prayer, again, an individual is not alone. An individual is part of a larger whole. They do the four directions, you know, when they bless people uh, that we're part of nature. So there are some real interesting questions that you have. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think so. Well, thank you for, thank you for, um, sharing with me a little bit about your experience and what you've learned related to that. Uh, well, Diane, we've had a very full conversation. It's been two hours <laughs> already. Really? So, yeah. Longer than I know we had originally planned to go, but thank you so much for sharing so generously uh, with me and with people listening uh, of your knowledge and your experience and your wisdom. Uh, I've really enjoyed this. And I think especially for anyone who's made it this far <laughs> in the interview, they have to, so thank you. 
Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure and a blessing. And uh, I just am delighted to be able to share these creative ideas. Peace to you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.